to Romans chapter number 12. Romans chapter number 12. We just got started last week in our study of this chapter, and I tried to introduce the chapter mainly by looking at the word therefore in verse number 1. We paid a lot of attention to that and looked back to see what that word is therefore. And uh, so tonight I want to speak to you about the gift that God wants, the gift God wants. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. A fellow by the name of Ed Fisher uh, had a cartoon depicting a huge altar. It was, uh, looking at it, it would look like the ruins of the ancient Mayan culture down in Central America. And uh, up at the top there was a fellow that was evidently the priest holding a sword and just waiting to slaughter the next victim. And also pictured then two guards dragging a very resistant young man up the stairs to be the next sacrifice. Watching this young man as he resisted was another character that appeared to be the the chief of the tribe. And he comments to the man standing next to him, the young people don't seem to believe anything these days. Well, I guess that's really putting it to the test. But I want you to know that young people are not the only ones that have a problem when it comes to this matter of us giving God what He wants. The gift that God wants. Well, what does God want? What does God need? How do you, how do you give something to someone who basically has everything? Remember, God is self-sufficient. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. So what, what gift can we give Him? Well, since He owns everything, and since He is self-sufficient, He doesn't need anything, what does He want? Well, according to our text, God wants you. God wants me. God wants us. Now, somebody says, well, I've given God this and I've given God that, but have you given God you? That's, that's the, whole, the whole issue. I want you to notice, and I talked about this a little bit last week, but I want you to notice the passion of this call. You, you could say this is a call to consecration here, but notice the passion of it when Paul says, I beseech you. In other words, he did not have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. That word beseech is a very strong word. It means that he's begging. He is pleading, as it were, begging for a response. The difference between, at least one difference between teaching and preaching is that in teaching you are mainly dispensing information, whereas in preaching you are declaring the information but you're also pleading for a response to that. I can stand up here and I can give you the same information in a, in a lesson as in a sermon and make no appeal whatsoever and just lay it all out and here's the facts and, uh, 
And by the way, that, that's important. There, there's certain information that we desperately need. We need to know what the Bible says, but, but we can't stop there. We've got to get beyond that, as James says, and to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. So, so Paul is not satisfied in just saying, okay, here's the facts. He is begging for a response, exhorting them to, to act on it, encouraging them to put into practice the things that they had been taught. And that gets back to that word, therefore, which takes us back to the mercies of God and the majesty of God that we've already talked about and which he talked about in the first 11 chapters of this wonderful book. And so here we see the passion of it. It it tells us how important this issue was to Paul, but not only to Paul, how important it is to God. God really wants you. God's not satisfied with just saying, I want you. He is, as it were, begging and pleading for a response from you. And, And notice the people, not just the passion, but the people that he calls I beseech you, therefore, brethren, brethren, it's useless to expect unbelievers to respond to a command, especially a command like this, where you present your bodies as a living sacrifice and their attitude is, oh, you got to be kidding me. That's expecting too much. You see, until a person is saved, until they have a new nature, they don't have a heart for a demand like this. They have no real desire to please God in everything. That explains why a lot of folks are totally unresponsive to the preaching of God's Word. They will sit through one service after another after another, and and that will go on for years, and there some people will never make a move of any kind. You never see any change in their attitude. You never see any change in their behavior. And the reason is really rather simple, you know. Uh, just as a dead person is insensitive to the things around him, as a dead person has no appetite for food, an unsafe person has no appetite for the Word of God. You know, their attitude is, I can take it or leave it, or that's kind of interesting, but, you know, I'm not going to really get caught up into that. And I think we would all be shocked. This is one thing Billy Graham and I would agree on. With even all of our disagreements, we would certainly agree on the fact that the vast majority of church members are lost. Uh, and I don't say that to judge you or anybody else other than the fact, just looking at what the Bible, if you've ever studied First John, you know there are certain characteristics, there are certain vital signs that if a person is really saved, those vital signs are going to be there. And you look at Christendom in general and look around, you know, at all of the people that tell you they're Christians and see, wait a minute, they're no different than the rest of the world. There's something desperately wrong. And it makes no difference what you preach, how hard you preach, how long you preach. You just can't get through to those people. Why is that? Well, because a lot of them are saved. But these people, these people are Christians. Now, now not only are they Christians, they are Christians in Rome. And, and, and it just tells us, I think, that God always has a remnant. God has a people. Regardless of how bad the times get, God has a people on this earth. That's encouraging to me 
to know that there will always be a people of God. And maybe sometimes you feel like the world is so bad, it is so wicked, and you just feel, you know, that uh, that you're all alone. You're like out, out on an island all by yourself. Well, please understand, you're not alone. God has a people and a people that is able to live successfully regardless of how bad the situation is around them. This is kind of the last place a Christian would want to be is in Rome, and yet these people are there, and Paul is ministering to them and urging them uh, to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. So notice the particulars of this call. Look at the requirement that's defined. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. So now we know what God wants. He wants you. He wants all of you. That word present is exactly the same Greek word that's translated yield over in chapter number 6. I hope you're familiar with that chapter. It gives us the real key to victorious living. Let me just turn there for a minute. It might be that this is something new to you, but there are three things, three keys in Romans chapter number 6 that will help any Christian be victorious in their life. First of all is knowing. Verse 6, I've circled these in red in my Bible, knowing this that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now that's the first thing, knowing until we know that, until we live in the awareness of that, we're going to suffer defeat. Now look at verse number 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, reckon it to be so. You know, you say, well, it doesn't feel so, uh, like that's the way it is. Well, that's not the point. The point is reckon it to be so. Consider it to be a fact. When God says something, it's a fact whether you feel like it or not. It's a fact. And he says, reckon yourself to be dead unto sin. But look at verse number 13. Here's the next word. It's yield. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness, Righteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So that's, that third word gives us the key to living victoriously. There's things we've got to know, things we've got to reckon, and then it gets down to the fact we have to yield ourselves to God. That's the word that he's using here when he says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present, present, yield your body as a living sacrifice. In other words, it is a free, voluntary offering. Now, back in the Old Testament, you'll remember that God required that the Israelites bring Him sacrifices. And in many cases, those sacrifices, only a part of the animal was actually devoted for that purpose. But the point is, that entire animal, although only part of the body was used, the entire animal was devoted for that purpose. And you remember when it speaks about... You know, offering to God a lamb. It had to be a lamb of the first year. It had to be without spot. It had to be without blemish. It had to be a male. It had to meet all of those qualifications. And so that entire animal was to be devoted to that purpose as an offering to God. 
when Paul mentions our body, the reality of it is it's as though he is saying, present all of you. In other words, your body, your soul, your spirit, your entire person. God wants all of you as a living sacrifice, devoting yourself entirely to Him. That means if I'm going to devote myself entirely to God, I have to do what? I have to relinquish my rights, as it were. Or maybe I need to put that differently. I need to relinquish my claims to self. Because I don't have any right to take what belongs to God and use it otherwise. And if I'm going to devote my life, if I'm going to yield myself, body, soul, and spirit to God, I have to relinquish my claims to myself and give God His property. Now, notice he says, I want you to present yourself as what? A living sacrifice. Somebody says, well, I love God so much. I love Jesus so much. I would die for Him. That's not what he's asking you to do. He's not asking you to die for him. He's asking you to live for him. Present your body as a living, not a dead sacrifice. And notice, notice the character of this devotion. He says, which is holy. Holy. That's the character of it. You know, as God is holy, we're to be holy. And, and then notice also, he says, which is acceptable unto God. That's the object of it. We're presenting ourselves, as it were, to God Himself. He is the the object to which we give ourselves as we yield ourselves to Him. Now, somebody says, but that sounds so very unreasonable. Well, turn to 1 Corinthians for just a moment, chapter number 6. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 and uh, This is a stark reminder to all of us as to God's rights in our life. Verse number 19, he says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? Think about that. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands today. Where does God live? He he lives in the believers. And he says, notice that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God. Notice, and, and you're not your own. You're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, if I was to go over on the street that I live on, and, and let's suppose, you know, uh, although I live on that street, and I go down through there, and I see something in this yard that I like, and... You know, I just decide, well, I'm going to take that. And I go down a few houses, and I see something else, you know, that I like, and I'm going to take that. Somebody said, what are you doing with all that stuff? I said, well, I live on this street. I I saw it, and I liked it, and I'm going to take it. But, But I don't have any right to take property that belongs to other people, do I? And I don't have any right to do with my life what I want to do. It's not up to me to determine what to do with my life. My life belongs to God. It's bought and it's paid for. I belong to Him. He has every right to do with my life whatever He wants. I'll never forget. And I, for a long time I carried uh, this poem. It's, the title of it was, God, I Hate Oklahoma. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. Uh, but that's the way the woman felt. God, I hate Oklahoma. And uh, And it had to do with this woman and her husband who... They were living there. I can't remember if he was a preacher or what, but 
but she hated Oklahoma. And the poem talks about the dust and the wind and, you know, all of the negative things about Oklahoma. Uh, But it's amazing, it's amazing that whenever you finally realize this is where God wants me to be, all of a sudden those things don't matter anymore. Because being where God wants you to be is the most important thing in all of life. I'll never forget several years ago, I preached a sermon, uh, something to do with surrendering yourself to God and being where God wants you to be. And I'll never forget one of our deacons uh, came forward and he said, Well, Brother Stone, I don't know how to tell you this, but you just preached me and my family out of the church. I said, What? <laughs> he said, We're leaving. Yeah, we're, we're going to leave. I said, What are you talking about? He said, God has laid it on, 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 on my heart for a long time, and I've been fighting this to start a church over in another little town. And, and you know, I'd like for this church to start a church over there, and, and, and that, that's where God wants me to be. And we did. We started, a, we started another church in another little town over there. But that was a whole lot better, him doing that, than staying where God no longer wanted him, him to be, you see. And that's what it means when we present ourselves as a living sacrifice that we're willing to take our hands off of our life and give God total control. It's as though we're giving our life to God like a blank sheet of paper and letting Him as the great composer write His own composition. Because, by the way, He he knows how to use your life a whole lot better than you do. Amen? He knows how to put it to good use. Now, notice... Notice the reason here that's declared, I beseech you therefore, brethren, and this is an important phrase, by the mercies of God. That word mercies has to do with favor shown to those that are undeserving. It has to do with kindness or with compassion. And by the way, what more reason could we need to present ourselves to God other than the mercies of God? When we think about how merciful God has been to us, you know, how dare we hold out on God? You know, think about all of these things that God has done. You know, that's grace. Grace is whenever God gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy, mercy has more to do with God withholding what you do deserve. And, I, you know, I, I, I just think again and again of all of the times that that. You know, in my mind, God should have killed me. God should have let me die. I mean, God would have been perfectly justified in in doing that, and yet He didn't. And again and again, God gave me another opportunity at life. The mercies of God. Listen, He said to Israel, it's by the mercies of the Lord that you're not consumed. That's true of each and every one of us. It's only by the mercy of God that you're here, that you're breathing, that you have life, that you have health, whatever you've got. It's only because of God's mercy and His grace, because we don't deserve any of it. So Paul is saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable. What could be more unreasonable after experiencing the mercies of God than to live as though we were not indebted to God whatsoever. Now, that's unreasonable. It's unreasonable for us to, to think 
about God giving His only beloved Son on the cross. And for God to save our wretched soul and God to meet our every need and then we deny God the one gift that He wants. That's unreasonable. It's not unreasonable when Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, a man must forsake all they have, take up their cross and follow me. That's not at all unreasonable. It's reasonable because God is a gracious and merciful God. Now, I want you to notice the results, the results of this put on display. And this is where we're going for the next several weeks. But it begins in verse number 2 and goes all the way down through the remainder of the chapter. And he says, Be not conformed, notice, to this world, but be ye transformed. Now, we're starting to see what happens whenever we present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. There is a transformation, and that takes place by the renewing of your mind. But notice as he goes on, and we're not going to read all of these verses, but as we go on and we look at the evidence of a surrendered life, here's what we learn, that the evidence of us having surrendered ourselves to God is that we give ourselves to His church. We live in a day and age where a lot of people got the idea that, you know, that they're fine with being a Christian and, you know, that's, that's all well and good. They profess to be a Christian and they would say they love the Lord, but they don't want anything to do with what they call organized religion. They just don't want anything to do with the church at all. And their attitude is, I can worship God just as well at home as I can at church because, you know, besides there's so many hypocrites at the church and all of that, you hear that all of the time. Well, the fact of the matter is Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It's the only institution on this earth that Jesus Christ founded, the only one. It is the only institution on this earth that God ordained to carry out his work. And as you read on down through here, notice verse number 4, for example. For as we have many members in one body, remember the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, the church is what? It's the body of Christ. It's like a body. And he says, notice that we have one body and all of the members have not the same office. In other words, everybody doesn't do the same thing. Uh, aren't you glad that, that we don't have, you know, 300 piano players? And, and so, you know, on, on Sunday morning, uh, we come in, we file in, and everybody takes their turn playing a little ditty on the piano, and they go out the door. There's no preaching, no praying, no singing, nothing else. Just a lot of piano playing. Uh, I mean, that'd be a mess. We couldn't accomplish anything that way. And the church is made up of different members, each one gifted in different ways. And that's the point he's trying to make. He says, and all members, verse 4, have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy, ministry, verse number 7, and teaching, exhortation, verse 8, and on and on and on. And so he goes through all of these things saying the real evidence of you having surrendered yourself entirely to God is whether or not you give yourself to the body of Christ. What is the body? My body is the physical representation of, of me. You, you can't see the real me. 
The real me lives in this body. You can't see the real me. But I'm able to communicate with you through this body. It is a representation of me. Well, the church, the body of Christ, is the representation of Christ on this earth. And we ought to so live that others see Christ when they look at this church. That's what they ought to see. That's what ought to impress them, that those people are like Jesus. And notice he's given to each one of us different gifts that we're to use for his honor and his glory. And then he moves on, and you'll see this later on. Another thing, he says, and let love be without dissimulation. In other words, there can't be any any duplicity. There can't be any hypocrisy. Uh, we've got to have a real, genuine love one for another. Not this pretend kind of stuff, but a real, genuine love for one another. And then he moves on to tell us how to how to deal with one another whenever issues arise. And they will. They really will. Uh, you, you know, I, I, as far as I know, I haven't had any issues with my neighbors ever over there where I live now. I can't even remember how long it's been since I had an issue with a neighbor. You know, I don't have any issues with them whatsoever. But I've had, uh, I've had uh, a few <laughs> issues with, <laughs> with family just like you, right? I mean, there are times that I wake up on the wrong side of the bed and I have the wrong attitude and they uh, upsets me straight. Uh, I'll, I'll... You all know what I mean, though, don't you? Here's what I'm trying to say. The people that you love the most are the people that you have the most disagreements with, right? I mean, it's just, that's just the nature of the beast. That's, just the, that's not a good way to say it, but uh... <laughs> that's just the way it is, folks. When you get close to people, all of a sudden you become more aware of their faults and what have you. And because of the interaction, what happens? Well, as a result of that, there are going to be some times whenever, whenever we're not on our best behavior. And he tells us, he says, I, I want, and here's, what, here's why it's so important that we, that we surrender ourselves to the Lord and give ourselves to the church. He says, rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. We ought to be there for one another. And whenever our friends are weeping, we need to weep with them. Now, ask yourself if you're doing that. Because we, so many times we've got people that are grieving, people that are hurting, people that have needs. We need, we need to feel somewhat what they're feeling instead of being so far aloof and cold and indifferent. We need to feel what they're feeling. Not only when they're hurting, we need to feel what they're feeling when they're rejoicing. We need to, we need to learn to rejoice with them. And that, do you know, and we'll get to that later on. That's a whole nother message. That some people don't know how to do that. Some people don't know how to rejoice, whether it's pride in their heart or whatever it is. There are people that, I mean, they are not about to say, well, that that, that was really good, I really appreciate it, you really did a good job or anything. They're not about to do anything that's going to encourage someone else because I guess in their mind that's going to make them look small or something. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Be happy for them. And he tells us we ought to learn to live peaceably with one another.
Boy, isn't that something? But I want to tell you, look, none of these things are going to happen until, first of all, first of all, we give God the gift that He wants. And what does He want? Well, He wants you. He doesn't want you to die for Him. He wants you to live for Him. Do you know Christ is your Savior? If you do, you need to take your hands off of God's property and say, Here am I, Lord. Send me. Use me. Do with my life whatever you want because it all belongs to Him anyway. That's the gift God wants. Let's, let's give Him what He's asking for. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, how we thank You that You didn't hold back anything for us that Jesus gave his all on the cross at Calvary, that he suffered and bled and died, and he, he did it all, even with joy in his heart. There was not one time in all of his earthly ministry that he regretted the sacrifice that he was to make. Not one time that he complained about it, but rather it was with joy that he faced the cross. So help us tonight as we think about the gift that you want God, help us to not complain about it being too much. Help us to not complain about it being uh, uh, radical and fanatical, but help us to realize that Jesus gave all for us. Let us give Him our all. Surrender ourselves and let You do with our life whatever You will, knowing that You never make a mistake and that we'll be far better off with you in control than if we try to run our lives. So, bless us tonight. Have your way in each and every life here, for we ask it all in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Let's stand together, and while we sing a verse of invitation, if God's speaking to your heart tonight, would you come? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. He's the potter, Thou and we're the clay. The potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. Tell you how we felt whenever we got the news 
the other evening that Lexi had trusted Christ as her Savior at church camp. And uh, we've both been praying, but I've got to say I know that that Bev has prayed more fervently even than I have. I hate to admit that, but uh, I'll tell you, she has prayed and prayed and prayed for Lexi. She told little Tori the, uh, last Sunday night, I guess it was, and uh, to to pray for Lexi this week. They were going to camp together, and Tori had been saved. And uh, and Tori went home and told her mother, I'm so excited about camp, and explained why, because she was hoping that Lexi would be saved. Well, she was. And uh, we cried and rejoiced, and now Lexi comes tonight to present herself for baptism next week. All in favor of that, let it be known, the uplift of the hand, all opposed, like sign. So this is a really happy moment in our family and uh, and uh, and should be a happy moment for all of us. So uh, you come by right after we're dismissed in prayer and let Lexi know how happy you are for her and uh, just pray that God will bless her and use her life. Brother.